This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It begins with sort of what are aesthetics. Um, and the definition of aesthetics um, is really a set of principles concerned with uh, the nature of uh with nature and its appreciation of beauty. Um, and so, you know, what is the nature of beauty? And of course, that's, a, that's an age old uh, question, but uh, in facial plastic surgery and oculoplastic surgery, um, a lot of it has to do with restoring uh, the youthful face. Uh, and so what we'll begin with today is sort of an outline of how do we understand the difference between the aging face and the youthful face and then we'll focus on uh, eyelids and the area around the eyes themselves and, and really try to understand what's going on with, with droopy upper and lower lids. Uh, and then we'll finish off with discussion on how we treat those. Uh, that's including um, uh, botulinum toxin, Botox, uh, fillers, and um, cosmetic eyelid surgery. So... Um, at this point, I would normally open this up to everyone and, you know, ask, you know, how, what's the difference? What are the differences that we see uh, between these two halves of the individual? One is the youthful side and the other, uh, the more aging side. And so we'll just kind of go ahead and point them out. And really, so in the youthful side, we see that there's, you know, much smoother skin. The temples here are fairly uh, filled out as opposed to being hollowed out in, um, in our aging face. Uh, on the youthful side, we see full, uh, we call these the lateral, lateral meaning the outside uh, fat pads uh, on the brow. Whereas as we get older, the, the fat underneath the brow starts to uh, actually collapse uh, and go away. We see a low medial arch, uh, low medial brow, and we see the brow is arched laterally. And as we get older, a lot of times the um, medial part of the brow actually ascends a little bit and the lateral part starts to descend. And so we lose a little bit of our arch. Um, if we go down to, uh, if we go here in the upper lid, uh, again, it's fairly full and smooth and the upper lid, as we get older, becomes, uh, more, um, deflated, but also there's excess, uh, skin, uh, relative to that deflation. In the lower lids, we see that there's a very smooth junction between the uh, lower eyelid and the contour of the cheek. Uh, whereas as we get older, uh, we start to see these grooves, uh, we'll call this the tear trough, uh, that sort of separates out the contour between uh, the lower lid and uh, the cheek itself. As we get further down, we start to see the appearance of uh, these lines, the nasolabial folds, what we call the marionette lines. We see lines and um, we'll call them uh, perioral rightids. Righted just means line uh, around the mouth. Uh, and in the youthful face, we just, we don't see these. In general, we see a heart-shaped uh, face uh, in youth and we see more contours, sometimes jowls uh, as we get older. So why does this happen? Um, and a lot of it happens because uh, there are changes that go on in the bone structure, the muscle structure, and the fat, and the skin uh, as we age. 
So back here, just in the skin, uh, we actually see that uh, the stratum corneum actually gets uh, a bit thicker as we get older. There's more pigmentation that goes up into the skin. Um, but we also see that the, um, the dermis, uh, made up of collagen and elastin fibers, uh, starts to actually break down and get much thinner. And so uh, the skin itself uh, becomes thin, becomes more wrinkly, and it starts to be able to stretch out more, and it doesn't have its resiliency. Uh, this particular protein called elastin is what gives all of our tissues uh, the resiliency and the, the ability to sort of stretch out and then come back, and we start to lose that uh, as we get older. I always think this is a fun picture to look at because uh, this is just showing a little bit of the effect of sun exposure. So there's many, in addition to age, there's many external factors that can also sort of age our skin. Uh, so this is a uh, former truck driver and uh, he uh, would drive with uh, the window open on one side and get a significant amount of sun exposure. And you can see uh, the effect of that sun exposure on just uh, that left side of his face relative to the other side. There are a number of fat pads that sit uh, just below uh, the skin. And in youth, uh, these are fairly robust. And as we get older, we start to see that these fat pads start to atrophy. They go away. Uh, and where they go away, our tissues become deflated. So we'll see deflation of the brow fat. We'll see def deflation of the uh, temporal fat. And so we'll see hollowing in these areas. We'll see deflation of a lot of this cheek fat and because of that, you see the underlying structures, the bone and the muscles, um, which are not as smooth. This fat has a great smoothing uh, effect uh, to it. In addition to the deflation, there's also some descent of tissues. So we start to see there's migration. Um, the cheek will actually uh, migrate both down and will often migrate um, forward or anteriorly. And so that starts to create uh, this groove uh, between uh, the nose um, and the cheek called the nasolabial fold. Uh, we'll start to see these grooves here uh, along the bottom corner of the mouth. These are our marionette lines. We'll start to see that this nice um, round contour of the lid and cheek starts to separate out and we, and we see a, a groove start to set place uh, between the eyelid and the cheek itself. Again, another picture sort of highlighting a lot of those changes uh, that we discussed uh, before. In, with respect to the eyelids, a lot is going on also as we age. And so this uh, diagram is uh, what's called a sagittal section. This is sort of cutting through the eyeball from uh, the front part, uh, right in front of the skin uh, to midway through the orbit. And what it is doing is highlighting the different structures that will be changing. So initially here we have the eyebrow up here, the eyelashes down here. This is the upper lid. We have skin. Then there is this orbicularis muscle. This is the muscle that actually closes the eye. Um, just deep to that orbicularis muscle is this uh, fibrous tissue called the orbital septum. And the orbital septum is an important structure because it actually keeps a lot of this orbital fat back um, behind the eyelid. The same is going on in the lower lid. We see skin, 
orbicularis muscle, orbital septum, again, keeping uh, the orbital fat back. As we get older, this septum starts to stretch out a bit more. We start to get a little bit of excess skin as well. Same thing happens in the lower lid. This septum starts to stretch out. However, it's adherent uh, in certain places. So uh, especially true in the lower lid, there's one place where the septum grabs onto uh, this tissue called the periosteum right on the bone uh, called the arcus marginalis. And in addition, there's a little ligament here that holds onto the orbicularis muscle called the uh, orbital malar ligament or the orbital retaining ligament. And that's really very firm. And so you get this stretching of the septum. The fat is protruding forward. However, uh, this ligament is holding it back and it's creating this groove along the lower lid. And so we see in this last picture, um, orbital malar ligament, we've got some excess skin down here. This, the septum is pooching forward and we start to see the upper lid and the lower lid bags that occur as we get older. But in addition, we have a number of changes going on even in the bone structure. So as we age, the, the orbital bones themselves are actually uh, moving. And we see that the, the orbit itself is enlarging both um, superior medially, so it's in and up, as well as infralaterally or down and out. We also find that the cheek itself is re recessing. It's actually moving back uh, relative to uh, the orbit. As again, kind of showing this change, this is uh, the youthful eye, more of a round-shaped um, orbit. Uh, this is the bone. And as we get older, it's stretching out superimmediately and infralaterally and it's increasing this orbital volume. And what that means is it's allowing sort of the eye to sit back and look more deflated. Um, and as we talked about before, the this is a, um, these are x-rays kind of again in that sagittal view, um, but this is that cheek prominence, the malar prominence. And as we get older, it re recesses and goes back. And we see that um, the, orbital rim and the cheek are pushed back. And what that does is it actually provides less and less support for the lower lid. Uh, and in doing so, it allows the lid uh, to fall and, and it creates more of those um, hollows between the eyelid and the cheek. This comes up uh, into play as we start to think about cosmetic surgery or fillers or Botox, um, because if we look at our youthful face, we have a pretty prominent... Um, this is our cheekbone and this is our fat. Um, and it's out in front of where the eyeball is. And that's supporting the lower lid really well. But as we get older, this cheekbone is starting to recess in. We're losing the fat uh, and uh, the cheek is descending. However, remember, we still have that orbital retaining ligament. It's still holding true here. And so we start to get this groove in, in here. And, we, and, um, and instead of one single... Uh, contour, we sit, we get two uh, contours, which are disrupted by this groove. And also because this cheek is, this cheekbone is back further, it's not supporting that lower lid well, uh, and that lower lid is going to start to fall. We call these the vectors. Um, a positive vector is when the cheek is sitting out in front of the eyeball, and a negative vector is when the cheek is sitting back 
behind the eyeball. Um, and in fact, it's this positive vector that's typically a very youthful appearance. Um, just to kind of give you a sense here, both of these uh, folks here, uh, this is our plumb line from the, the eyeball and their vectors are a little negative and this allowing their um, starting to become hollowed out in here and we're starting to see these uh, lower lid bags. Um, this young woman is actually only in her early 20s. However, because she has a negative vector of the orbit, you're starting to see um, the lower lids uh, protrude a little bit. Here is that little indentation. That's where that orbital retaining ligament or the orbital malar ligament is holding those uh, tissues uh, in. So as we talk about um, aesthetics of the face, a lot of times we're, we were kind of brought up with the idea that, oh, we should just lift everything, but higher and tighter are not always better. And, and this is just a number of pictures of some celebrities I uh, found from the internet. And clearly, um, higher and tighter, uh, it doesn't really necessarily look natural. And a lot of this has to do with um, the volume. And we've talked a little bit about deflation of uh, the cheeks. And so we'll talk about a couple concepts. One is the double OG. So an OG is an architectural term uh, for this sort of um, somewhat S-shaped um, figure. We see it a lot in doorways um, uh, throughout architecture. Um, but a number of aesthetic surgeons uh, talk about the double OG of the face. So the first OG, and this is when we look at people uh, from not exactly a, a side profile, but an oblique profile, we see that the first OG is this um, prominent um, lateral brow. So as in youth, the brow actually extends a little forward and then it comes in and that's the end of the first OG. Um, at the lateral campus here. And then there's the second OG is when we have this nice smooth contour of the lid cheek, and then it kind of comes in again in that heart shape um, of the mid face. Now, I love this photograph because uh, the uh, photograph on um, the left here is actually her pre-photograph. This is before she did any uh, aesthetic um, procedure and here's the post and and really what you're starting to see is that um, initially you know she doesn't have a fairly prominent OG she's got you know a little bit of um, you know a fairly flat brow somewhat flatter cheek here uh, she's had some filler uh, had some uh, fat injection uh, to the brow itself um, and that's plumped that out given a more youthful appearance She's had um, filler or fat injection uh, uh, to the cheek uh, as well. Um, hasn't had a blepharoplasty. Um, you know, this is mostly done just with uh, filler. She probably had a little bit of Botox um, to her forehead, which has helped uh, some of the wrinkles on the forehead here. Um, so let's talk about the eyelid itself. So normally we'll get... Um, you know, as uh, eyelid surgeons, uh, we'll hear people complain about their upper lids or their lower lids, and we'll often hear they're unhappy with excess skin of the eyelid uh, or the fact that uh, the, the skin is protruding uh, past the eyelid itself and there's this hooding out here. They'll often say, you know, I, my lids just look tired or sad or heavy looking. They may have difficulty wearing makeup. Um, 
sometimes this interferes with vision or activities of daily living or recreation. Um, lower lids, they'll we'll often hear stories of, uh, you know, I have bags under my lower lids or bulges or loose skin. They're just unhappy with them. Um, and again, uh, this is that anatomy, um, which we kind of discussed earlier. Um, this is a little bit of highlight, kind of shows a little bit better. Again, here's that lower lid septum. Here's the orbital fat. Here's that retaining ligament. Um, and as remember again, as we age, the orbital septum starts to thin out. The fat moves forward. It's not that we have more fat in our lower lids. They're not bulging because there's more fat, but because uh, the fat's not being held back as well. And we have that orbital retaining ligament, the orbital malar ligament that's holding uh, the orbicularis and the skin in, and it's creating that groove, allowing the fat to protrude over it. Um, upper eyelids uh, have a number of re reasons though why that can be droopy. And a lot of times people have some component of um, more than one of these, which may be playing a role uh, in their appearance. So the first one is called dermatochalasis. Dermato um, meaning skin. Chalasis is usually sort of excess of it, sort of redundant. Uh, and what we see here is that there's actually redundant uh, skin of the upper lids. There's some redundant skin of the lower lids. There's that bulge of the fat pad that's not being held back by the orbital septum. And you see this groove right in here? This is that groove that's created by that orbital malar ligament that's holding the skin and, and orbicularis muscle back. Um, here again, all that skin that's, that's covering over the eye. And for this uh, person, they're actually saying, you know, I'm hitting my head into cabinets. I can't see um, having trouble driving, I'm having trouble reading. Um, when we look underneath uh, the lid, we can actually see that you know the eyelid itself is probably at the right height. It's just that there's so much excess skin here. Uh, same thing with this individual. A lot of excess skin. It's really starting to block uh, their views um, above and to the side. The second cause is called blepharitosis or eyelid ptosis. Um, Tosis just means drooping, so you can have tosis of, of any structure of the body. Uh, in uh, oculoplastics, we talk about tosis of the eyelid. And what happens here is that there are muscles that raise the eyelid, um, the major one being the levator and the levator aponeurosis. And the levator muscle, um, often with aging, will actually stretch um, and what we will call it dehiscence or stretching of that muscle. And as that muscle stretches, it just doesn't hold the eyelid up as high as it should. The muscle works fine, it's just stretched out. A lot of times uh, we'll see this, especially in younger in individuals, if they've worn contact lenses, especially hard contact lenses, as the uh, lenses themselves or putting the lenses in and out will actually stretch out that muscle more and more. We'll see it uh, often in younger individuals if they've had um, prior uh, uh, surgery uh, for the eyes as well, because sometimes that act of uh, stretching the eyelids uh, for the surgery itself uh, can cause the ptosis. But here, if you notice, there isn't really excess skin, it's just that the eyelid itself is low. And then the last cause for a droopy lid uh, is eyebrow ptosis or brow ptosis. Um, and a lot of this can happen because 
maybe chronic overaction of these muscles that are bringing the uh, eyebrow down and in. This is these are caused by the corrugator muscles and the procerus muscles, um, but also um, the uh, lateral brow. This area of the skin uh, and the brow itself can sometimes just fall with aging as well. One of the clues that this is brow ptosis rather than dermatochalasis is that we can see that the hood actually extends past where the upper lid and the lower lid come together at that lateral canthus. When the hood extends past there, typically it's the eyebrow that's causing the trouble. Again, just an example of brow ptosis. Um, so uh, this woman, um, here's her medial brow, uh, and we can see that where it normally should the, the lateral brow should be at around the same height as the medial brow, her brow has started to descend. It's actually gone down over a centimeter uh, and it's causing this um, brow to be low and it's obstructing her vision. So a couple of years ago, we started to really get into uh, understanding the anatomy of what's happening as we age with respect uh, to the brow. And so this, is, this article came out, I think it's like 2010. Um, and we looked at a couple different measurements of um, eyelid height. We looked at the measurement from the uh, lower lid to the bottom part of the brow. We looked at the measurement of the pupil reflex, the center of the pupil, uh, to the upper lid, and a number of other measurements. And kind of what we found is that as uh, patients were aging, um, contrary to sort of what was you know, thought is that the eyebrow itself, this this height, the, the eyebrow didn't descend really as we age. It actually got a little higher. Um, and you say, well, that, that's kind of funny if we think everything is, is sort of drooping and falling with age. Um, but what we did find was that the eyelid itself um, was actually getting lower and lower as we age. And so it's sort of illustrated in this photograph of, uh, it's the same woman, just uh, when she was younger, when she was older, um, and it shows her brows and her eyelids. And you can see, you know, again, she's probably painted on uh, some of these brows to some extent, or she's um, drawing on some of it because the brow has been lost over time. But her brow actually is higher than it was when she was younger, but that's probably mostly in compensation for the fact that her eyelids themselves are lower than they were uh, when she was younger. So she has eyelid ptosis and her brows are going up actually to compensate. And that's often what we actually see in normal aging uh, in the central and the medial part of the brow. The one area that doesn't seem to obey that is this lateral brow. Often that does seem to fall with age. And the reason we think that is the, there's a muscle that raises the uh, eyebrows called the frontalis muscle. Uh, and that frontalis muscle doesn't actually extend the entire um, length of the, the, the entire horizontal length of the brow. It actually extends only to the sort of medial, uh, the inside two thirds of the brow, and then it sort of trails off. And so the frontalis muscle lifts the brow. However, we have so many other forces muscles that are bringing the brow down with time. We have these corrugator muscles that are bringing the brow in. We have the orbicularis muscle, the muscle that closes the eyebrow, 
closes the eyelid that's bringing it down. And we also have um, uh, the temporalis muscle that's bringing the eyebrow down as well. And so without any opposing forces in the upward direction, that brow with time continues to fall and stretch um, inferiorly. So again, still interested in this, we, we uh, did a study looking at um, 1,024 subjects, um, multi-ethnic uh, uh, multi, multi study, and we looked to try to see what was happening with respect to age and ethnicity. And we started using a couple additional measurements. One was looking at the lateral brow. So we drew a line from the very tail of the brow down, we call this the lateral brow plumb line. And then we looked at the angle uh, that the brow makes uh, from uh, the center uh, to the lateral brow. And that's the angle from the mid brow to the lateral brow tail. Um, and what we found was that the lateral brow plumb line, as we get older, the lateral brow descends for both men and women. Um, and we saw that um, in all ethnicities, this also uh, was the case. Um, same with the angle of the brow. So as with age, that angle actually uh, decreased. Uh, the brow, the tail of the brow is getting lower with respect to the uh, middle of the brow. Um, and again, um, we saw that the same held true. Little differences between ethnicities um, and races, um, but again, for the most part was holding true uh, throughout. The one thing to always remember, especially as we as surgeons, as we're thinking about uh, doing reconstruction is that the male brow is typically very different from the female brow. Um, classically, the male brow does not have an arch uh, like the female brow does. Um, it's typically lower, it rests at the orbital rim. It tends to have a flatter contour uh, and uh, maybe more prominent and fuller. Unfortunately, a lot of times when people do get plastic surgery and reconstructive surgery, um, they may not um, kind of take that into account. And so, um, you know, especially here with, with Kenny Rogers, you know, where, you know, Kenny had these very low um, flat brows and, you know, he had um, aesthetic surgery done and to raise his, his eyelids or you know, to, to treat his droopy eyelids. But what he got is he got a brow lift, uh, which elevated his brows, but kind of unnaturally so. Um, what he probably needed was a ptosis repair. He's got you know, eyelid ptosis, and that's why his eyelids are still droopy. Um, and so it's really important that uh, aesthetic surgeons understand uh, the various components, the brow ptosis, the dermatocalasis, the eyelid ptosis, when doing reconstruction and um, keeping that in mind as we want to restore people to the youthful appearance, not necessarily give them a cosmetic surgery look. Um, okay, why don't we break for uh, a question or two, uh, if we have any. We do um, give a couple of questions. So the first one is referring, I think, to that before and after picture. Um, from that first section. So when a person has some of the procedures that you described, what are the consequences 10 years after? Oh, of, of any of these procedures? Yeah, you might get to them individually, but yes. Yeah, so consequences 10 years after. So in general, um, usually I tell people, you know, all of the same um, 
trends. So, you know, we're, we continue to deflate. Our, our, our skin continues to uh, stretch out a little bit more. Um, the, you know, so all of that's going to continue after, even after we have our aesthetic surgeries. Um, probably one of the things that, that always comes up is, you know, can you do something now that looks great only 10 years later, 15 years later, find out that it, it doesn't look great anymore and, and maybe it's causing harm. And where we often see that the most um, is when we're doing uh, lower lid surgery. And um, what happens is if we end up taking too much um, skin from the lower lids or taking too much fat from the lower lids, it may be fine right after surgery, but as we age more and other tissues continue to stretch out, that lower lid can start to get lower and lower and we can start to get what's called eyelid retraction where the lid starts to hang down and that then would have to be you know corrected or resuspended the eye can become really dry and irritated uh, from that sort of thing and that's probably the most common sort of bad thing that can happen 10 years later um, that we see um, and we'll probably address it more as we get into the cosmetic surgery part too great um, and then another question uh, regarding visual field testing uh, when you're doing a pertosis or dermatic, dermatocolitis, can patients be mistaken for at risk for glaucoma due to blind spots or dark spots from brow or eyelid ptosis? Yeah, it happens all the time. So um, I actually love my glaucoma colleagues um, so much because a lot of times I get a number of referrals uh, from them because people do come in um, and will have a visual field test. So um, uh, and I don't know if we want to dis discuss visual fields a little bit, just, you know, these are things that people will do uh, for uh, testing for glaucoma. They'll sit in a machine, their eyebrows may be droopy, their eyelids low, they may have ptosis. It's block, it, those, all those things can actually block the upper part of the visual fields. And it can look very similar uh, to uh, damage from glaucoma. And, you know, one of the uh, things that we'll do then is we'll actually tape up the upper lid to kind of keep it more of an open position and then retake that visual field. And if we find that there's actually a significant difference, A, that'll tip the glaucoma special off that, that this is not glaucoma, but B, that's often part of the medical indication to do uh, surgery to raise those lids is to sort of help that visual field because it often will allow you to see better when you're driving, allow you to um, not get as tired when you're reading or um, not bump your head into cabinets when you're, when you're, um, uh, doing dishes. So when I uh, was doing my training, um, uh, finished my fellowship in 2009, the top aesthetic procedures um, in 2009 were uh, doing botulinum toxin A, um, doing uh, filler, so hyaluronic acid, and then laser hair removal, microdermabrasion, chemical peels. Um, so really, uh, uh, Botox and fillers were the number one and number two non-surgical procedures uh, in that time. Flat, fast forward to 2018, um, we've um, more than uh, about tripled the number of um, Botox procedures that we're doing. We're still doing a fair amount of fillers, um, chemical peels, laser hair removal, dermabrasion, and further down the list. So these are still our top um, procedures that are done. In terms of surgical procedures, uh, all plastic surgery, not just oculoplastic, um, breast augmentation, liposuction are one and two. However, blepharoplasty comes in third, um, cosmetic eyelid surgery before 
uh, no surgery and abdominoplasty. Um, and so the next part of this talk or the second half of the talk is really gonna be devoted to what can we do to treat these uh, aging uh, changes, uh, both the minimally invasive um, and the surgical. And really for minimally invasive, I'm gonna talk mostly about botulinum toxin, neurotoxins. I'm gonna say Botox, although there's a number of different neurotoxins that we can use. Um, and then fillers, um, hyaluronic acid fillers, fat, other fillers, we'll talk about those as well. And then we'll actually get into some of the techniques of how we deal with um, uh, ptosis and dermatochalasis um, uh, surgically. So Botox is actually a brand name. It's just like Kleenex, like Kleenex uh, for uh, facial tissue. Um, it was initially discovered uh, in 1793 uh, as foodborne botulism. Um, and it was associated with spoilage of sausage and named botulism after the Latin word for sausage or botulus. So um, it comes from a gram-positive rod. It's the bacteria that's found in the soil. It's spore-forming, anaerobic, and it produces this toxin that causes botulism. Um, there are seven neurotoxic subtypes of, of botulinum toxin, labeled A through G. Um, and we uh, end up using um, botulinum A uh, for cosmesis. Um, in 1980, so a good little bit of San Francisco uh, history. So Alan Scott, uh, one of uh, San Francisco's uh, pediatric ophthalmologists um, over at Smith-Kettlewell, he uses botulinum toxin for the first time to treat um, strabismus or eye muscle deviations. Um, he... Uh, then uses it 1985 um, to treat um, blepharospasm where the eye, eyelids are, are closing too much and they're spasming and this relieves patients. And until that point, um, patients with blepharospasm essentially could not be treated at all. There was nothing we could do uh, for these patients. Um, in 89, oculinum, uh, which was Alan Scott's uh, first name of the Botox, was FDA approved for blepharospasm strabismus and for hemifacial spasm. Allergan bought the company, uh, renamed it Botox, and, and here we are. 1990s, uh, there begins cosmetic use um, by uh, Carruthers and Carruthers. Incidentally, um, Carruthers had spent time with Alan Scott um, uh, early in her career, um, got introduced to um, botulinum toxin really early in its development and use, brings that back um, uh, uh, to Canada and uh, the use of botulinum and for cosmesis uh, uh, stems from there. So how does Botox or botulinum toxin work? So, so we inject Botox um, and we inject it into muscles. And the reason we do this is that um, we have nerves um, interact with the muscle cells at this place called the neuromuscular junction. And when we bathe this area in Botox, um, the botulinum toxin gets taken up um, by the, um, the, the nerve side, so the nerve cell through these what we call endocytotic vesicles, um, the 
light chain uh, of the botulinum toxin is uh, cleaved and it exits uh, the vesicle. And then it actually cleaves this um, protein called SNAP25. Um, and uh, SNAP25 is critical for the vesicles, the synaptic vesicles that contain acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that causes, um, uh, that allows nerve cells to cause muscle cells to contract. It's what, what the, the impulse for firing uh, the muscle cell um, that comes from the nerve. These acetylcholine um, is normally released into the synaptic junction, but if you cleave SNAP25, you decrease, you um, block this nerve's ability to release acetylcholine. And so the nerve itself no longer uh, releases any acetylcholine and that muscle doesn't fire. And you can imagine how systemically uh, in you know, systemic botulism, so we have massive amounts of botulinum toxin in all of our muscle, um, all of our synaptic junctions throughout our body, especially in our diaphragm where we're breathing, et cetera, you know, this can easily um, kill the animal, kill us. Um, but used very small amounts in very precise places, uh, this can actually cause those muscles uh, not to fire. Uh, and that becomes really important as we try to uh, treat wrinkles and we try to lift certain tissues. On the market now, it used to be just uh, Botox. Uh, now uh, there's also Dysport, Myoblock, Zeman. Um, they're all very similar. They have little bits uh, of difference in terms of uh, how quickly they act, how easily they diffuse. Um, you know, for the sake of our conversation today, um, the one thing to know is probably that there's no exact dose conversion between the different formulations of botulinum toxin A. However, roughly most people will use one unit of Botox to about one unit of Zeman to about three units of Dysport. Dysport was used in Europe um, around the same time it got approved in Europe as Botox got approved uh, in the United States. And so a lot of times you go to Europe, most of the folks there are often talking about Dysport because that was the first uh, botulinum toxin that they were using uh, at the time. So in terms of contraindications, you know, we'll never inject someone if they've got an active infection uh, at the site or if they have any hypersensitivity to a component of the product. So um, obobotulinum toxin A or Dysport um, should not be given to patients who have true allergies to cow milk protein because there's actually um, uh, cow milk protein in it. Um, but this limitation doesn't apply to onobotulinum toxin A or Botox or incobotulinum toxin A, Zeman or myoblock, um, which is a botulinum toxin B. It is a class C agent in terms of pregnancy and lactating. So we generally avoid uh, injections. And if we're doing this for cosmesis, we absolutely avoid injections uh, in pregnant women. Um, in the risks of maternal infant transmission of botulinum toxin in lactating women are unknown. Thus, we really avoid this use in this, in this population. So um, whenever I start injecting someone uh, with Botox, I always talk about the rules of threes. And, and this is to sort of set expectations. It usually takes about three days uh, for the effect of the Botox to start. Um, so on the day we inject, there is really no difference 
uh, in these muscles. And it takes three to five days to set in, and it peaks at about two to three weeks. So we're going to see the biggest effect from this Botox in two to three weeks. We're also going to see if, if there's any side effect. We get a droopy lid or there's um, uh, a part of the mouth that, that droops a little bit because we're a little uh, over aggressive with our treatment. Um, that's going to be most uh, prevalent at two to three weeks as well. Usually that starts to back off a little bit and then we plateau for about three months. And by the end of three months, um, uh, little buds on these uh, nerve cells have grown back uh, and we start to release acetylcholine again uh, and uh, the muscle starts to work. And at that point, if we want to retreat, that's when we do. Um, we can see bruising at the injection site. Uh, sometimes we can get pain with injection. A lot of times um, I'll actually use a topical anesthetic cream first for people who are very sensitive to that. Um, we'll sometimes also uh, reconstitute the Botox with bacteriostatic sodium chloride because that tends to be um, uh, less acidic than the uh, preservative-free uh, sodium chloride. Some people get a headache right after receiving the Botox. It's usually one or two days after the injection. However, um, what we found early on as we were doing this was that people with migraines, their, their headaches would go away when we gave them injections of Botox uh, in their uh, glabella areas. And so a lot of times um, people will, will use this to treat their migraine headaches, or they'll just they'll do it for cosmesis, but they'll get the added effect of uh, migraine relief. And rarely we'll see sometimes people get a little flu-like illness for a day or two after the injection. Probably the most important complications to think about is that um, the Botox can diffuse into the nearby um, muscle fibers. So um, it can get into muscles that we didn't want to treat. So it can cause a droopy lid or a droopy side of the mouth, et cetera. Um, if we give too much, we give too high a dose, we can see more of these complications. And again, in the neck region, you know, if we if we inject too much, we don't know where we're injecting. We can actually have more serious or even or even fail complications in that in that area. So, uh, the first area that were uh, approved by the FDA uh, to treat cosmesis were the glabella areas. This is the area between the eyebrows. Um, and that's to treat the muscles, the procerus, which is the muscle that brings the eyebrow down, and uh, the corrugators, which bring the eyebrows down and in. And then the second areas to get uh, approved were what's called the crow's feet or the lateral um, uh, facial ridids. And these are the laugh lines uh, out uh, past uh, the eyelid here. Um, and you can see this is um, this patient before they got treated with Botox, um, sort of with maximal scrunch. Um, and then here uh, we see these tissues are really relaxed. We see smoothing out of these lines uh, in both areas. There are a number of places that we can uh, treat with uh, botulinum toxin. And it really depends on what we're trying to achieve. Um, so one concept to kind of uh, talk about is something called dynamic versus static wrinkles or, sta uh, or dynamic lines versus static lines. And dynamic lines are the lines that occur when uh, we flex certain muscles that are underneath those that skin. And so we will see dynamic lines in the forehead when we raise the eyebrows. We'll see dynamic lines uh, in the cabella when we uh, scrunch our um, eyebrows together. 
you may see dynamic lines uh, in the orbicular, the lateral orbicularis area. These are the laugh lines or the crow's feet. Bunny lines, if we scrunch up our nose, uh, and perioral rhytids, they used to be called smoker's lines uh, when we purse our lips. Um, but we can also use Botox um, to reshape or to lift structures too. Um, so any muscle that brings um, the eyelid um, down or co the corner of the mouth down, we can actually paralyze that muscle so the opposing muscles that bring the eyelid or the corner of the mouth up act unopposed and we can kind of get a little bit of lifting of these structures. So many times we can lift the lateral part of the eyebrow just by um, injecting uh, botulinum toxin in the orbicularis out here so it doesn't bring the eyebrow down. Um, we can lift the corner of the mouth by injecting into the um, depressor anguli oris here uh, so that this muscle doesn't bring the corner of the mouth down. Um, and I like this, this photograph because all of the, the elevators, these are muscles that bring tissues up are in green, the depressors are in red, and it turns out if we um, focus on Botoxing, um, paralyzing the depressors, we can often lift these structures. We can lift the brow, we can lift the eyelids a little bit by using Botox. Um, we talked a little bit about glabellar rhytids. So a lot of times we'll use a pattern where we'll treat uh, the corrugator and the procerus here. We'll do a little less as we get to the tail of the corrugator because we don't want it to cause the eyelid to droop. And we'll put a little bit of uh, Botox just in the orbicularis at the lateral portion of the brow. And this will raise the entire brow up. Um, this is before and three weeks after Botox into the glabella. Um, notice these, these lines here have really kind of disappeared. Um, it may take actually a number of months for uh, these vertical lines, the number 11s, to go away. Um, I've seen it up to six months of continued paralysis to fully relax that skin. Um, this was talking about the temporal brow lift that we just uh, talked about. And, the study was done by one of our uh, colleagues, former uh, UCSF um, facial plastic surgeon, Corey Moss. And um, Corey found that uh, you could actually lift um, the eyebrow about um, four millimeters uh, just by uh, using um, uh, Botox, especially at the lateral canthus. To get rid of uh, these lines, we can kind of treat uh, the forehead as well using a little bit. I don't treat the forehead a ton because I often find that um, if we treat the frontalis, remember the frontalis is what's lifting our brows. And so if we treat the frontalis, um, sometimes our brows can actually descend and we can get droop of our eyebrows and our eyelids a little bit. So I find that I treat this area probably much less than, than I did early in the, my career. Um, just because I, I get such a great effect if I treat uh, the glabella that a lot of times people aren't raising their eyebrows quite as much when they have this glabella treated. One thing we want to avoid is, is sort of giving people these, these super high arched uh, brows. You know, if, if, we, if we Botox um, out here, 
um, and, and we Botox our, our, our brows here, we can often get sort of descent of the brow here and it becomes very high and arched um, out here. We can treat this easily. We can kind of add a little Botox right over the brow. We can cause it to fall back down. Um, but we try to avoid these kind of complications. Another complication is a droopy lid. Um, sometimes with too much Botox, especially as we get out into the tail of the corrugator, it can cause that uh, lid to droop. Um, there are some drops, especially there's a new drop uh, on the market now that uh, people can use, and it can typically raise that lid uh, back up a couple of millimeters as we wait for the ptosis to uh, resolve. Um, for our lateral lines, we'll put a couple units of Botox here just underneath the skin, and that will often cause those uh, wrinkles to uh, relax. We can treat the bunny lines and get rid of these wrinkles here. Um, the lower face is often fraught with issues when we treat it with Botox, but we can use it to sometimes uh, improve these downward lines. Um, so again, there's a muscle called the depressor anguli oris um, that will bring the corner of the mouth down. And if we Botox that muscle, it can kind of bring the corner of the back, the muscle, the corner of the mouth back up. However, if you kind of notice down here, it's really a complex structure of a lot of different overlapping muscles, and they all do different things. So, you know, in red, we have this depressor anguli oris, but um, in purple here is the depressor labii, and they're really close together. Um, and so, you know, if we end up treating uh, the depressor anguli oris and a little bit seeps over to this depressor uh, labii, we can actually get complications where um, you know, the corner of the mouth is actually up too high. This is actually the, the complication side where uh, the depressor um, labii was hit. And so this corner of the mouth is up relative to where it should be when she smiles. How do we treat that? Well, we'll just actually knock it out on the other side and then wait for both sides to normalize. Um, a dimpled chin, we can often treat with a couple units of Botox into the mentalis muscle as well. Uh, and we can also treat these fine lines around the mouth with some Botox. We can also use it to, um, to uh, decrease uh, sort of squareness of the jaw, treating the masseter, which is a very large muscle uh, in the face um, over time, uh, will actually uh, allow more of a chiseled face and decrease some of the squareness of the jaw. We can also treat the platysma bands. However, remember this is an area that we do want to be careful of because of other uh, structures that are important for the airway. Um, some finer points we can help folks with with a gummy smile uh, to sort of uh, relax some of those uh, muscles that are bringing the lip up uh, too much. So let's see if we have uh, any questions. Uh, we do. Um... And just going back to that, okay, do this one first if you want, uh, just the OPMD, that was um, oculopharyngeal muscular dystrophy and just about the treatment. I don't know if you want to touch briefly on that and then we can go to the rest. Sure. Um, you know, oculopharyngeal muscular dystrophy, just for the rest of the audience uh, here as well, um, is an inherited uh, form of a muscular dystrophy where uh, the levator muscle, uh, as well as other extraocular muscles, um, don't uh, work as well, and they gradually work less and less. Um, and what we find is that um, treating those folks um, 
our standard surgeries, which is often what we call levator surgery or um, conjunctival mueller muscle repair, these are um, surgeries a lot of times that work really well when people have a normal functioning muscle that's just stretched out. However, with oculopharyngeal dystrophy, it's not stretched out, it just doesn't work as well. Um, and because it doesn't work as well, uh, those standard treatments don't, don't work either. And so a lot of times what we'll do is we'll couple the eyelid uh, to the eyebrow using something called a frontalis sling um, because the, the frontalis muscle actually does work pretty well. Um, and so by doing, by coupling that will actually, uh, in, it allows people to use their eyebrows to raise their eyelids. Um, in addition, because the eye, the eye, the, the eye muscles that move the eye up and down left and right don't work quite as well. Um, we often want to make sure that we avoid a surgery that's going to put their eyes at risk because normally when we close our eyes, the, uh, the eyeballs actually roll up. It's called uh, the Bell's response. But individuals with um, OPMD often don't have as good of Bell response. And so we actually have to be really um, very conservative too with our ptosis repair because you know, we don't want to overdo it because if the eye is open even just a little bit, it can sometimes expose the cornea and cause that cornea to uh, dry out and even get infected. So um, a lot of considerations uh, that we do differently for, po for folks with oculopharyngeal dystrophy or myotonic dystrophy or, or some of the other muscular dystrophies. Great. Um, a couple more. Is it common for ophthalmologists to have some background in the, these procedures or is it more of a specialty? Um, it used to be probably more common. Uh, I mean, everyone who trains as an ophthalmologist um, gets training in doing these uh, procedures, but I would say far and away, the probably most common procedure, uh, surgery procedure that we do as ophthalmologists in our training is cataract surgery. Um, and then the other surgeries that are more specialized like retina surgery or um, oculoplastic surgery, especially some of these um, nuanced type surgeries, are probably more now in the realm of the subspecialist than the generalist. That being said, there's still a lot of general ophthalmologists who will do uh, blepharoplasties or may do some ptosis repair um, and may do some, some uh, lower lids, um, but it's not as much as it used to be. Great. Um, and then a couple of questions on Botox. Um, if you get Botox regularly, does that mean does that muscle become less effective over time? So do you need more, less Botox? Um, and then just kind of along with that, what are the cumulative effects of years of Botox injections? Um, so um, normally it doesn't actually become less effective, although the, the, you know, sometimes the muscles can be a little hypertrophic, um, meaning that they're a little big if, if they're sort of overactive to begin with. So, um, you know, sometimes we'll see people with fairly thick, um, corrugator and procerus muscles initially, and we start Botoxing them. And those muscles will sort of um, thin out a little bit and there'll be a little more atrophy just because they're not being used quite as much. They're not being, they're not getting their workout. Uh, that being said, once you stop doing it, uh, the Botox that is, uh, these muscles will start contracting again and they'll start to become thicker again too. So you can get a sort of transient thinning of these muscles, but they're typically going to come back and, and work just as hard once you once you stop the treatment. Um, and so that kind of 
answers or that goes into the second question, which is what are the long-term effects? And now, you know, we've been using this for about 30 years and we really haven't seen uh, any significant long-term effects of using Botox um, uh, periocularly. Some people uh, with time will develop either antibodies to the uh, Botox or to one of the other ingredients that are in uh, the Botox, which will make it less effective with time. We sometimes see that in people getting treated for um, blepharospasm or hemifacial spasm, that the Botox will just not work as well as it used to. Um, but that's really about it. And what are the drops that might raise eyelids up? Um, so it, it used, um, I'm trying to, I'm recalling the brand name now, cause it literally, I think it came on the market uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I'll put it in the chat in a little while, but it used to be that we use something called iopidine um, all of the time, uh, which is, um, a drop that we use for glaucoma. Um, and uh, that works well, you know, using it two or three times a day, but it starts to um, become less and less effective uh, with time. And um, I'm blanking on the, the brand name of the new drop, but essentially it's, it's the same active ingredient uh, that uh, was in Afrin, which is the nasal decongestant, which uh, folks are now using uh, for, um, they put into a drop formulation uh, and it's uh, raising the eyelids. So I'll find that for you all um, in the in between. You can look it up too. Um, oh, two more quick questions and then we'll move on. Um, can you use Botox to treat spontaneous asymmetric mouth grimace? It's the first one. Uh, yes, you could. Um, you know, any anything that, you know, it's it's sort of a, a, a that's probably more of a, a tick type, um, uh, condition, but just like a blepharospasm or a hemifacial spasm, um, you can kind of use that Botox to treat those muscles that are grimacing. Um, again, being really careful not to overdo it so that you cause the whole side of the face uh, to droop. And you may have to balance a little bit with the other side to kind of get uh, good symmetry, but uh, it can be done. Um, and then just to backtrack, I uh, just looked it up. Is it unique that you were thinking of the drop? Uh, up, uh, sorry, Upneek. Yes, Upneek. Yeah. Um, it's U P N E E Q. All right. Why don't we go? So fillers. Um, in terms of uh, injectable fillers, um, we can use a number of different things to fill uh, these tissues. Uh, they're really meant to uh, address volume loss, rebalance facial proportions, increase symmetry, and correct wrinkles uh, and scars. And remember before we talked about dynamic wrinkles, these are wrinkles that uh, are underneath a muscle that's contracting. Fillers, on uh, the other hand, we often use to treat wrinkles that are static. So the nasolabial fold here, which doesn't really change when we smile or, or, or um, uh, uh, do any other facial movements, it's still a groove. The tear trough, still a groove. The marionette line, which is still a groove. Those are areas we'll often treat um, with fillers. Um, super uh, large number of options that we can use to fill um, uh, the skin. Um, probably the oldest one that people have been filling with is fat. Uh, it's from yourself. Um, 
trouble with fat is it often has a lot of variable duration. It has variable takes. So often we'll take fat um, via liposuction type techniques uh, from the belly or um, uh, other areas of the body. Uh, and then we'll inject it uh, into areas of the face. Um, sometimes it takes more in one area than another. It's a little less predictable that way, but it is very long lasting and it is your own tissue. Um, collagen used to be sort of the other alternative um, and it was a uh, very short duration. People had to be uh, tested to see if they had a reaction to collagen before they would get injection. But far and away, the most popular um, filler is hyaluronic acid. Hyaluronic acid is a substance that we all have in our bodies. Um, it uh, goes in as a gel. Um, it's, um, and it's very forgiving uh, because we can also melt it away. So there's a number of different hyaluronic acids uh, available and there's probably even more on the market uh, next week than this week. Um, and we'll, we'll use them throughout. And again, one of the reasons we use this is hyaluronidase, the enzyme that breaks down hyaluronic acid uh, is something that we all have on hand and it's our friend. And so if we overfill one side versus the other, or if we get a little nodule from the filler on one uh, in an area that we don't like, we can actually use this enzyme uh, after we've uh, done our injection to melt it away uh, and to, to restore symmetry. Uh, in addition, if the filler material somehow gets infected, we can actually melt that infected filler away and treat it with antibiotics to get rid of the infection as opposed to having to cut out um, uh, filler that's uh, infected. Um, number of different products on uh, in the market, uh, some used uh, for, uh, you know, marketed more for sort of deep um, uh, structures to sort of give more volume, like uh, something like Voluma. Um, other areas that are marketed for more superficial lines, like Restyl and Silk, um, they all, uh, you know, have little differences in terms of how they're cross-linked, uh, which makes them either disperse a little more easily or clump a little bit more, um, either uh, go away faster or go uh, take a longer time to go away. Most of them now actually come with um, anesthesia. Uh, in the filler itself. So you'll see things like Restylane L, uh, which means that it's Restylane, which is one of the older hyaluronic acid fillers that also has lidocaine uh, with it. Uh, so it makes it a fairly comfortable uh, process now where it used to be that we would often have to inject people with lidocaine first and then do the filler. Um, I always talk to people a lot before they get their fillers um, to kind of uh, mention some uh, things that we can prevent if we think about it ahead of time. So um, blood thinners, um, you know, some people need to be on them. Sometimes we actually have to have a discussion that if you need to be on this blood thinner, maybe a filler is not necessarily for you because the amount of bruising that you can get uh, from uh, filler injections may actually outweigh the benefit that you might get from doing the fillers. But if you're able to come off them or discontinue them two weeks prior uh, is, is often uh, recommended. Um, some people have uh, cold sores um, and other uh, herpes infections that kind of chronically come about around their mouth or around their eyes. Uh, and if they have any history of these, we'll um, prescribe Valtrex or, um, 
which is an anti-herpetic medication, um, starting a day prior to the filler, and we'll do it for seven days, especially for lip augmentation, uh, because this is the area will often kind of get a cold sore outbreak. Um, and then when we're doing the, uh, the procedure, we'll often prep the skin like we would for a sterile surgery um, to avoid infections uh, and biofilms that are carried from the skin down uh, into the filler and just kind of set in there and set up sort of this chronic low-grade infections. Number of different ways, and I'm not even really going to go in it, into it too much, that we actually can inject the filler. We can push it ahead of us. We can uh, slide the needle back as we're injecting. We can actually inject down deep into tissue, so be right on top of the bone to sort of create volume. Um, we can fan uh, our injections, uh, or we can crosshatch them to kind of get more diffuse um, uh, augmentation of uh, of volume, as opposed to uh, as superficially, as opposed to you know a line of filler. There are a couple other types of fillers on the market other than uh, hyaluronic acid. Uh, one is called calcium hydroxyapatite or RADIS. Um, it is not dissolvable. Um, it lasts a bit longer. These are um, essentially microspheres of like a coral type material. Um, and you know, a lot of people will use it for hand. Um, they might use it for cheek and chin augmentation. I tend not to use it anymore just because um, it's just not forgiving and I can't melt it away if, if uh, someone doesn't like uh, the way it looks or if it's a little uneven, um, uh, we just have to let it go away and it takes sometimes one or two years for it to go away. Uh, Polyl-lactic acid um, or Sculptra um, is a different kind of filler. It's, it's one that was um, approved for uh, marionette lines, nasolabial folds, initially approved for lipoatrophy of the temples. Um, and what we do is we inject it over a number of, of uh, appointments and it sort of builds up uh, gradually. It actually causes your body to create a reaction that then builds up um, and um, increases the volume of these tissues as opposed to the filler itself uh, providing the volume. And it lasts for up to about two years. So let's just focus a little bit now on um, the common areas that we'll um, treat. So. Uh, this uh, person uh, here has uh, nasolabial folds, these are deeper grooves here, uh, and we put filler underneath um, the nasolabial folds here, um, probably a little bit of deep bow injection, a little deeper, and then maybe did some cross-hatching, and that has um, decreased uh, their appearance. In the area of the lips, putting a little bit of filler right at the vermilion border, the border between the pink part of the lip and the skin, um, avoiding this area here called the cupid's bow. And then uh, again, the vermilion border here, same for the bottom here, really plumps out the lip and it actually can decrease um, a lot of the uh, wrinkles, these perioral rhytids uh, that are around the lip. Um, Again, with lips, I think it's super important to be really conservative, to improve it a little bit, but don't to not sort of get that really uh, overly filled duck type appearance of the lip. Um, I kind of have, have refused uh, to do uh, you know really massive lip augmentation because I just don't think it looks good. Um, cheek and nasolabial augmentation, so you know it can really help uh, appearance. So here. Um, and again, she's also had uh, some Botox. You can see that her forehead ridids 
forehead lines are also gone. Uh, but nasolabial folds, not only can we inject underneath these, but if we augment the cheek here and build out the cheek, it actually brings up and out the cheek and will actually, it'll efface a part of this nasolabial fold as well. So part of treating this line is giving some filler uh, to the cheek as well. In addition, when we fill this cheek, it actually fills in a little bit of this groove and, and helps uh, the lower eyelid uh, as well. And we, we start to get rid of that uh, tear trough. Um, this is uh, just uh, a nice um, article that came out in 2011, um, which was one of the early articles to describe using filler to actually treat these grooves. Remember this orbital uh, retaining ligament or the orbital malar ligament holding this tissue back, and people often will see the bulge of um, orbital fat above this line, and they're unhappy with it. Um, but instead of doing blepharoplasty to sort of remove that, um, uh, that fat or displace that fat, we can actually just treat the groove itself. We can put uh, filler, usually Restylane or something really thin, down on uh, the bone here and bring out that groove. And it really does, and you can kind of see, help uh, the appearance of these lower lids. None of them had uh, blepharoplasty. Uh, they all just had a little bit of filler, and it, it goes a long way. And I would say for most of my younger patients, when they have that appearance, um, I'll usually talk them out of eyelid surgery and we'll just do a little filler because I think it just works so much better. Um, like anything, you use it more, there's always a chance for more complications. Probably the most common complications are usually the ones that are not that serious, which are some tenderness and bruising, swelling, and, and those are really expected. Um, and they resolve over a couple of days. And I always talk to patients about it. And like tomorrow is not the day to sort of go to your uh, high school reunion if you get filler today. Uh, because it's going to be bruised and swollen. So, you know, give yourself a few weeks to recover before going out and, and having pictures done and so on. Um, we can get, as we spoke about before, infections uh, of the filler itself. They can develop biofilms, often from mycobacteria, will give a late infection or a herpes um, uh, uh, activation. Um, the most dreaded complications though are these ischemic complications of fillers. So it turns out that there's a very complex arterial um, uh, supply around the face and this actually extends to the area behind the eye uh, as well. And so if we inject filler um, un, you know, uh, accidentally into one of these arteries and can keep injecting, potentially we can get filler that'll go um, retrograde and go back and then can uh, block uh, any of these, um, you know, as it pushes then forward, it can block uh, the blood supply to the skin. Um, but even more seriously, um, if it goes back so far into the central retinal artery, it can actually block uh, the blood supply to the eye itself and cause uh, fairly immediate um, blindness. Um, so because of this, we actually always have our emergency kit with us. And, and the biggest thing, the most important one is to have is, is vitrace or that hyaluronidase. Uh, because especially when it occurs uh, in the skin, if we recognize it early and we inject a ton of this enzyme to break down the filler, it'll break down the filler even within those blood vessels. Um, when it's behind the eye, you know, people will often try and they'll do uh, hyaluronidase injections to the orbit. Um, but without 
whole lot of success. Usually by that point, uh, the, uh, the, if it goes into the central retinal artery, um, it doesn't tend to recover from that. We'll often also give people aspirin to take because that may thin out some of the platelet response. Um, so, you know, to sum up fillers and uh, Botox, you know, we can address uh, tons of areas of the face, uh, the forehead lines, the glabella lines, the laugh lines, the bunny lines, um, the dimpled chin. Um, with uh, Botox, we can fill deep glabella lines with filler. We can fill the tear trough deformity, nasolabial folds, the perioral rightids, marionette lines, um, uh, the jowls. But we can also lift tissues uh, with Botox. The lateral descent of the brow, we can treat with some Botox to the orbicularis there. We can treat the uh, downward turned corner of the mouth with some Botox. Um, I would say for lifting, though, fillers probably do the bulk of our, uh, of our job. We can treat the temporalis atrophy. We can treat lateral brow deflation by injecting both, uh, filler underneath the brow. Cheek deflation, again, can also treat that downturn um, corner of the mouth and lip deflation. Um, so I know we're running, what are we, how are we doing on time? We got one more section, uh, but I wanna make sure we have time for questions. Any new questions? Not really? Um, do creams with hyaluronic acid also work? Not, not anywhere to the same extent. Sometimes they can plump, they can plump out the sort of um, dermis a little bit so they can make the skin just a little bit plumper, but it's not the same uh, effect by any means. Okay. Um, that is all I see in the Q&A, so I'll let you move on to the next. Great. All right. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about surgery. So, you know, my preceptor, when I learned surgery, I mean, he, he was all about, you know, measure 10 times, cut once, sort of the old adage. Um, and it's, it's really important that our pre, the marks that we put on the skin, the, all of our measurements that we do at the time of surgery is, is actually probably even more important than the actual cutting and the sewing is how we mark. Um, so in the upper lids, you know, we'll actually always use what's called a pinch technique and we'll figure out how much upper lid skin that we can take safely so that people can actually still close their eyes once they're, once they're done. And we'll always leave at least 20 millimeters of skin between the eyebrow and the eyelashes because especially when you're lying on your back, um, the eyebrows go up and sometimes that can cause a little gap if we're over, overly aggressive. Mm -hmm. And it's always better to underdo than overdo. So we'll mark this, the area of the skin. We'll mark first the eyelid crease, which is this bottom line here. We'll do our pinch and we'll figure out how much upper lid skin we can take. And uh, we'll remove skin, sometimes with or without a little bit of muscle. Um, we may open the orbital septum, especially if, if it's really puffy in here and there's a lot of fat showing there. We'll actually sculpt back a little bit of this fat. Um, and these are just some before and afters of patients who uh, have had blepharoplasty. So all they did was they had a little bit of skin and, uh, and maybe some fat taken um, to kind of improve their appearance. They didn't have anything done to their brows. They didn't have any TOSA surgery. Um, and this is just with removing skin for these folks. Um, two other before and afters for blepharoplasty, upper lid only. Remember this condition, this is eyelid ptosis or blepharotosis. Um, probably the most tried and true is, is sort of the external uh, ptosis repair. We make a small incision in the skin in that eyelid crease. 
we go ahead and then uh, we dissect down um, to find that muscle, the levator muscle. And uh, what we'll do is we'll actually pass a suture um, through the levator muscle and, and where it inserts on the tarsus, which is the sort of rigid part of the eyelid. Um, and we'll actually accordion that uh, levator muscle and we'll bring it together. We'll, we'll um, tighten it a little bit, advance it uh, in an adjustable fashion. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll have the patient uh, sit up. They're usually fairly awake while we're doing this open and close their eyes and we'll set the eyelid at the right height. Uh, and these patients all had uh, levator surgery. This person had it on both eyes. Um, this one just needed on um, uh, the left eye here and just had a levator advancement on the left eye. And it really does uh, improve the appearance when this is the problem. In terms of lower lid blepharoplasty, remember we kind of evaluate the lower lids. Here, you know, we see, okay, you know, we have a deep tear trough, we have that line here. We've got some overhanging fat and maybe a little bit of redundancy of the skin on both sides. Um, so in order to sort of address that fat, um, which is really usually most of the problem, is we'll actually go in from the inside of the eyelid. We'll make a little incision on the inside of the eyelid. And that gives us access to this area uh, behind the orbital septum where the, all this fat is. And we can either trim that fat back or we can actually, um, uh, displace that fat. So we kind of show you two different techniques. And here is going in through that conjunctiva. We're um, now accessing the orbital fat. We see, okay, here's our orbital fat, that nice yellow fat. Um, and we can actually um, either trim it um, or we can create pedicles that we can then um, bring down into the cheek to actually fill that groove. So what we like doing a lot of times, because we know that people haven't lost fat, it's just been displaced, will actually release this arcus marginalis here um, and displace the fat and bring it down to treat the tear trough. So here we've released that orbital malar ligament and we've taken our little pedicle of fat and we brought it down um, into the, to, the tear trough and into the cheek. And now that recreates that nice smooth angle. So before and then after. Um, lastly, um, probably one of our best friends is blending filler with surgery. So a lot of times we can use a little bit of filler, filler here and there, especially hyaluronic acid, um, to just do the final touches, put the very sort of, um, icing on the cake, uh, with our cosmetic procedures, uh, to really create a, um, a complete look, uh, after surgery. So... With that, I know we're probably almost at time or at time. Um, maybe we'll open it to uh, any questions and I'm gonna stop sharing my screen. Um, yeah, we have a few minutes. So uh, first question, are there any contraindications for surgery or fillers if the patient has ocular rosacea? Um, you know, it's not like an absolute contraindication, but I'll talk to people about it because ocular rosacea will um, often lead to prolonged healing. So it may take a lot longer for wounds to heal um, when people have ocular rosacea or facial rosacea. Um, there can be just more inflammation uh, related to the surgery itself uh, with both of these things. Fillers probably not quite as much as the surgery itself. I see more of the issues when, when people are having surgery than, than fillers. And Botox, I, I never had anyone had problems with Botox and, and ocular rosacea. 
Okay, um, and then what causes a droopy lower lid? Most, I, it could be a whole host of things, but the biggest cause is is birthdays, um, honestly. So uh, as we age, it's, it's all of um, these structures, as we were talking about before, they, the lower lids um, descend and then the cheek deflates and sort of gravity starts to bring the cheek, uh, this deflated cheek now um, down and, um, and in. And so there's no longer as the, it's sort of pulling down then on that lid. And then remember before we talked about the bone of the cheek um, as we get older starts to regress. And so there's less and less support for that lower lid uh, and it starts uh, to fall. In addition, some of the tendons, just like any tendons in our body, start to stretch a little bit more with time. And so we can actually get stretching of this lateral canthal tendon as well. And that'll allow the, the lid to kind of come down some. Um, a couple more, we have a few more minutes. Um, if you have multiple eye issues like glaucoma, cataracts, et cetera, is there an order in which you should deal with cosmetic corrections like eyelid drooping? Um, in order. Um, Would you wait for the lid issues until you fix the other ones, I think is the question. I think that's, I mean, that I always tell people do all of your intraocular surgery first, do all of dealing with your cataract, deal with your, your glaucoma surgeries. If you know you're gonna get glaucoma surgery, you know you're gonna get cataract surgery, put off the lid surgery. You know, if it's like, oh, I have cataracts, I may have to have surgery in the next 10 years. Well, you know, maybe then go for your lid surgery and you can always revise things later. I think a lot of it has to do with how fast these things are coming up. Um, and regarding the Kenny Rogers photo you put up, how does that happen? Is that negligence or a patient request? Who knows? I mean, sometimes it can be all over the place. Um, I hope you still have the photo of, of um, uh, that you were going to present for us later. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, it can go either way. So sometimes, I don't know if it's negligence or it's just sometimes the aesthetic of the surgeon is different. Sometimes uh, the patient kind of comes in with an idea they want something and you have to be really firm to if it's the wrong idea to talk them out of it or to kind of present them with, with the right idea that's going to achieve their goals. Um, you know, um, unfortunately too, I do think that sometimes there are surgeons out there who, you know, a brow lift costs a whole lot more than a blepharoplasty. So, you know, um, there, there may be a little bit of, of trouble with scruples uh, as well. Um, what else is Voluma related to, uh, excuse me, is Voluma limited to cheeks or can it be used safely uh, to fill in a mild jawline or what filler works best for that? So, um, I like, I love Voluma for cheeks. Um, you know, the jowl here too, you could probably use it for, because again, again, it's going to be on, on the, the, the bone. Uh, and so it can kind of help with that area. Basically Voluma is great for deeper structures. Uh, if you're doing sort of really superficial fine stuff like like re, like uh, tear troughs or um, lips, it's definitely not for that because it, it's just too thick um, and you can get a lot more irregularities there. But for deeper structures, like you're talking about the jowl lines, some of these deep marionette lines, cheeks, volume is great. Great. Okay. And then I will ask one last question. Um, that's on the Q&A. How confident are you that you can always identify people who have had uh, quote unquote work done? Uh, if it's really good work, it's really hard to identify because um, 
it was done right and it really restores the natural uh, appearance. And um, it's easier to identify bad work or you know work that wasn't really optimal. Um, a lot of times you can see if someone's had a very faint scar. So we have the, the benefit of, you know, here's this um, slit lamp right beside me. So I've got a microscope every time I'm looking at, at patients and I'm looking at their eyelids. So I can often find um, little microscopic scar lines or little areas, you know, when we flip the eyelid that I can see that has, has a scar from, you know, a, a lower lid blepharoplasty where they went on from the inside. But, you know, if it's done tastefully, often it's really hard to, hard to recognize. Um, and that's the mark of a really good surgeon and a really good healing. All right, I think we are at time, so I want to be respectful of everyone's time. Uh, Brian, thank you so much. That was that was really interesting. That was really informative for me because it's not something that I do all the time. So. I appreciate. It. Sorry, it was a little bit of a tour de force, uh, but I figured if we had an hour and a half, we could probably cover a lot of ground. And I really thank you for uh, being the the MC and the host of hosts. Uh, and thank you to everyone on. Uh, the attendee list um, and uh, for coming and, and spending time with me tonight. And I really appreciate it. Awesome. All right. Thank you everybody for joining. And then hopefully we will see a lot of you next week. Have a good Thanks. night. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.